everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 15% off your order. Hey everybody, it is Monday, October 3rd. I'm Moshe Wanunu and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. There are a number of headlines we're watching as we begin another week here. First responders are still looking for survivors as Florida begins what looks to be a years-long recovery from Hurricane Ian. I'll have the latest from down there. Brazil, the world's fourth largest democracy, had an election on Sunday. It comes as the current president says he won't recognize the results if it shows him losing. I'll tell you what that's all about. The U.S. Supreme Court begins a new term today. I'll talk about what big issues are on the docket. The NFL says it is about to change concussion protocol after that huge controversy last week in regards to the Dolphins quarterback and the very scary concussions he had. I'll tell you what they're working on. And we'll end here with the 10-year-old being called Little Picasso, who's already selling his artwork for six figures. Before we start, a reminder to subscribe or follow the show on whatever app you're listening to us on. It'll ensure you don't miss a single episode. Okay, let's start in Florida where they are beginning what will be a years-long recovery from Hurricane Ian. The death toll has now surpassed 80 and looks to be going up as officials continue to uh, conduct search and rescue missions. Roads, some roads are still impassable and they're still waiting for water to recede from certain areas. Officials there are still struggling to get some basic services up and running. Uh, As I said, roads are not passable. More than 800,000 Floridians don't have power. They have restored power to more than a million and a half but several hundred thousand still don't have power. In some areas, may not see power for weeks. First responders are still searching for survivors in places like Cape Coral. They are sending folks down the Caloosahatchee River where there was a major storm surge. The Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, says there are more search and rescue workers in one place than anywhere in America since 9-11. 10,000 evacuees are already living in shelters. That number is expected to go up. Meanwhile, there was a major water main break in Lee County. That's the county that involves Fort Myers. Cape Coral, Sanibel Island, etc. And so uh, that is impacting upwards of 800,000 residents in the county. Meanwhile, there are other areas that have boil water advisories that they have to boil their water to have clean water. 
The problem is for many of those folks, they don't have power, so they're not able to boil their water. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden are expected to visit Florida and the hard hit areas on Wednesday. Their first stop though is today in Puerto Rico, where they will be visiting the victims of Hurricane Fiona. We should note that there are still a couple hundred thousand people in Puerto Rico that are still in the dark several weeks after that hurricane hit. One more thing you should expect to hear more about in the coming days and weeks is how Lee County responded in those couple days before the hurricane hit. Again, Lee County's Fort Myers, Fort Myers Beach, Cape Coral, Sanibel Island. They're facing questions in Lee County as to why they waited until Tuesday, 24 hours before the hurricane hit, to finally issue evacuation orders. Most counties on the west coast of Florida had issued evacuation orders on Monday. Lee County waited until Tuesday. They are defending that decision, saying people still had enough time to get out. They needed more time to assess. And Floridians should know by now uh, to be monitoring hurricanes on their own. The question they're facing is that, that 24 hours notice on evacuation made it really difficult for a number of folks to stay, reinforced that it might not be that bad, especially with the last second notice. People tend to psychologically uh, cling to previous uh, forecasts where it showed it wasn't going to be as bad. That's an issue that uh, crisis communicators and forecast communicators know about. And so by waiting that late, Lee County had an issue there. And that Lee County also has a number of elderly and poor uh, who might not be able to leave with so little notice. Now let's head to the huge election Brazil had on Sunday. Brazil, we should note, is the fourth largest democracy in the world. More than 200 million people live there. The two top presidential candidates were neck and neck late Sunday night and look to be headed to a runoff election at the end of this month. Former President Luiz Lula da Silva got about 48% of the vote. He was actually president back from 2003 to 2010. Uh, and is looking to make a comeback here. The current president, Yair Bolsonaro, got about 44% of the vote. He comes from the right. Lula comes from the left. There were nine other candidates, but ultimately it came down to these two. The major issues facing the country are the unemployment crisis that was made worse by the pandemic, as well as poverty issues in the country. As of late Sunday night, again, it appeared that neither got the 50% necessary to win outright in this election. So there will be a second round vote scheduled for October 30th. The big issue in recent weeks and will be the big issue on October 30th and the days following that is Bolsonaro, the current president's repeated statements that he will not accept the results if he loses saying the system is corrupt and rigged against him if he loses this election. It is honestly something that resembles a bit of what we saw here in the U.S. out of 2020, 2021. There's also a concern that there are elements of the military that are behind Bolsonaro and could back him up to stay in office even if he uh, loses legitimately on October 30th. The battle here is really between far left and far right. Lula, who is 76, and as I noted, was previously president of Brazil. Uh, he was put in prison for corruption a couple years ago. Those charges were eventually thrown out and he was let out of prison, which is what led him to run here. He's all about raising taxes on the rich, guaranteeing meals for the poor, defending the Amazon rainforest. Bolsonaro, meanwhile, has been in charge and been in office for four years. He's a pro-business, far right winger, who has opened up the Amazon to drilling, been critical of LGBTQ rights. Uh, he's also been very critical of the legal system, judges, journalists, uh, and he has mourned the loss of Brazil's former dictatorship. The dictatorship in the country fell back in 1985, and Bolsonaro is very sympathetic to those beliefs, and those are only reinforced for some Brazilians by his viewpoint that if he, again, loses in this democratic process, 
that he will just stay in office because he doesn't view a loss as legitimate. He has said, Bolsonaro has, that Lula's left-wing party is totally corrupt. You saw this play out in a recent debate uh, last week uh, where a lot of allegations were thrown around, particularly by Bolsonaro, that weren't always backed up by facts. What we're looking for now is what plays out over these next few weeks, and then, of course, voting on October 30th in the runoff. Let's stay in South America, where seven Americans who have been held captive in Venezuela for years made their way home on Saturday. That was after a prisoner swap between Venezuela and the White House. In exchange for the release of the Americans, President Biden agreed to grant clemency to two nephews of Venezuela's first ladies. These two men are known as the narco nephews and they were major drug smugglers. The group of Americans included five members of a group of oil executives who had been known as the Sitgo Six. They were uh, from the Sitgo Oil Refining Company. They've been detained for more than four years on charges of corruption that their lawyers and American government officials have said were totally trumped up. They were accused of conspiring to smuggle cocaine. But again, there were major questions about these allegations. But ultimately, there was a prisoner swap here between the U.S., the two narco nephews, exchange for these seven Americans. This comes as the U.S. has imposed major sanctions on Maduro's government. White House officials, though, say that the president's decision was a rare action, has not changed things in regards to Venezuela, uh, and is not likely to be repeated again. There are critics who are concerned that this prisoner exchange reinforces to countries like Venezuela that they can just kidnap Americans in exchange for things that they want in the U.S. Though we should note that there was another noteworthy prisoner release over the weekend. Iran on Saturday released Siamik Namazi. He's a 51-year-old dual national Iranian-American businessman who's been in prison there since 2015. They released him and lifted the travel ban on his father, an 85-year-old former UN official. But it's unclear what the U.S. did in exchange here for the release of these two and what prompted Iran to release the Namazis. The decision by Iran to show leniency to the father and son does come amid nationwide protests in Iran that have gone on for more than two weeks, show no signs of abating. They also do come with the background of the U.S., nuclear negotiations with Iran. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, comes out there and why Iran uh, was inclined to uh, release those two men. But as I noted, these uh, two releases by Venezuela and Iran has drawn some criticism. Uh, there are concerns among some officials, including Senator Marco Rubio and others uh, in the U.S. Senate who put out statements over the weekend that the U.S. showing an inclination to do prisoner exchanges, again, only reinforces dictatorships around the world, authoritarian regimes, of arresting folks. It does come against the backdrop that Russia is currently holding Brittany Griner, the WNBA star, as well as uh, Marine Paul Wieland, and negotiations are happening there. I should note that we've covered these types of prisoner changes for a number of years in Republican and Democrat administrations, and they are pretty rare, uh, but it is notable to have seen a couple of these in recent weeks, especially, again, as we watch what takes place with Russia and the Brittany Griner situation. Okay, back here in the U.S., a new Supreme Court term starts today. They open up their new term as they come back from a, a few-month break. They had all their big major announcements at the end of June, as they typically do. They begin their sessions in October, uh, and that begins today with a new, brand-new justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She uh, sits on the court for the first time, officially, after having been nominated, confirmed, and then now she sits on the court. Though it's not clear how much impact she will have as the 6-3 conservative supermajority continues. Six conservatives, three liberals on the court. Brown joins the two other liberals now, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. Uh, meanwhile, you have Justice Roberts plus uh, five other conservatives on the other side of the court. They're going to be hearing a number of major cases this term. That includes the cases on affirmative action, 
voting rights and the rights of LGBTQ Americans. It comes after their bombshell term last June where they eliminated the federal right to an abortion. They established a right to carry guns outside the home and they limited uh, federal uh, efforts by the EPA to address climate change. And so we are expecting to see a number of key decisions this cycle here that'll come in a few different cases. Here are a few that we're watching. One is effectively a combined case of Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, they both are in regards to affirmative action, and the court is very likely this term to finally end affirmative action in America after several decades. There have been a number of cases over the course of the past 20 years to end affirmative action, which is essentially considering race as part of college admissions. Uh, those previous cases were from Michigan and Texas. These cases are from UNC and Harvard. I should note that in the 2003 ruling, Sandra Day O'Connor, who was a conservative, moderate conservative, uh, she said she was approving the continuing of affirmative action, but thought there would not be a need for it in about 25 years. By the way, that was 2003, which would take us to 2028. We're now here in 2022. So it looks like the Supreme Court uh, will be essentially taking O'Connor's guidance, but just a couple years early. Uh, and so experts watching this uh, presume that the court will go in a direction where they will eliminate affirmative action at the end of this term. Then you have a major voting rights case that we're watching. It'll actually be heard uh, this Tuesday, but again, decisions won't come out till June. This is a case called Merrill v. Milligan. This is a challenge under the Voting Rights Act to an Alabama electoral map that a lower court had said diluted the power of black voters. Uh, right now in Alabama, 27% of the state's residents are black, but the vast majority of them are all thrown into one, just one of the state's seven congressional districts. A three-judge panel that included actually two appointees from President Trump agreed that the state should actually have created a second district with a black majority, um, that what was Alabama was doing was inappropriate. But the Supreme Court essentially stopped any changes during that process, and now they're going to rule on what to do in regards to voting rights in Alabama, and it could have an impact across several other states. Another electoral case we're watching is called Moore v. Harper. I'm gonna have more on this um, when this case is heard uh, in the coming months, but this case has the potential to reshape federal elections by increasing the power of state legislatures to draw voting districts. Republicans are essentially asking in Moore v. Harper for the justices to embrace a legal concept called the independent state legislature theory. It would essentially limit state courts' oversight of elections and give a lot more power to state legislatures, which, as we know, in many states uh, have supermajorities, whether they're Republican or Democrat. In this case, we're talking about North Carolina, where uh, Republicans run the state legislature, and uh, the state Republican Party there is arguing that state courts have no role to play in congressional elections in the drawing of districts. Uh, they believe the U.S. Constitution, their reading of the U.S. Constitution, gives that power to state legislatures alone. And so they want the state legislatures, the politicians, to have the power to draw uh, districts. Four of the nine justices on the Supreme Court have expressed openness to this independent state legislature theory. But there are a number of folks on the right and left, especially on the left, especially in the middle, and a number of conservatives that are very concerned about this theory and its ramifications, especially if the court adopts it in Moore v. Harper. One more case we're watching the cycle is a gay rights case. This is a new clash in regards to religion, free speech, and LGBTQ rights. The case involves a Colorado graphic and website designer who says that her Christian beliefs lead her to decline any request from a same-sex couple to design their wedding website. However, that puts her beliefs in conflict with the Colorado anti-discrimination law. So it'll be interesting to see how the court rules here on this particular case.
All right, I wanna go back abroad here for a second. Ukraine continues to show signs of progress. We're gonna be watching the Southern Front this week. Its goal right now, Ukraine, is to take back all the territory. Russia controls about 15% of Ukraine right now, and they're battling the Russians on two fronts, in the East and in the South. Right now, we have some unconfirmed reports that Ukraine has made major progress and broken through the Russian lines in the South in the Kherson province. Notably, this is one of the four provinces that Russia annexed last week. Uh, this was a desperate attempt by Putin to basically claim this territory is his, is Russia. Ukraine, though, has gotten the advantage militarily, which explains why Russia tried to annex it. But Ukraine's already on the march here and taking back some of this annexed territory. This comes just days after Ukraine liberated a separate area called Lyman. This is on the eastern front. Uh, this is a key supply hub for Russian forces. The Ukrainians were able to take that back, and now it appears they're on the march in the south. It has been harder for them to take land in the south. It's a much more flat area, so Russia's had an easier time defending it. Nonetheless, it appears the Ukrainian offensive is really working here. And it comes, by the way, as Putin has reportedly rejected his general's attempt to pull back in the south. They say they need to reestablish a new line. Putin thought it would show weakness and would hurt his annexation efforts. So he made the military stay there. And now it looks like they're going to have to chaotically withdraw from a certain area in the south. Needless to say, it'll be very interesting to see uh, what announcements we see this week on the southern front after Ukraine made that great progress in the east last week. Back here in the U.S., it was week four for the NFL, but the big story many of us were watching was the NFL concussion controversy you may have heard about. This is in regards to Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungavailoa. He uh, was involved in a pair of incidents where it appears he suffered multiple concussions uh, and the NFL didn't effectively address it. The league and the players' units say they anticipate imminent changes to the sports concussion protocol. What happened was this. Last Sunday in a game against the Bills, the Dolphins quarterback, that is Tunga Vailoa, was allowed to return to a game despite evidence that he suffered a concussion. He suffered a major hit, was taken back to the locker room. They effectively said it was a neck issue and they put him back in the game. Several days later, on Thursday night, he was allowed to play again against the Cincinnati Bengals where he received what was another concussion. He was taken back to the uh, locker room. This one was really frightening. You could see his uh, fingers uh, shaped in weird ways. This was an effect of what clearly was some sort of a major hit to his brain and a concussion. This issue over two games over five days and the fact that he was allowed to play again has reinvigorated concerns about head injuries in the game and how they're handled. This has been an issue for years, but uh, there are complaints that the NFL continues to not take this seriously. And the way they treated Tua here, the Dolphins QB, we'll just stick with Tua, it's much easier to say, uh, is a leading to additional concern. The NFL's chief medical officer, that's Dr. Alan Sills, told NFL media on Sunday that uh, the NFL's head, neck, and spine committee are still talking about final language, but they believe they have a new protocol that players who exhibit gross motor instability will be part of concussion protocol, which means you got to sit on the bench. So back to what we saw with the Dolphins QB, Atua got up from his first hit uh, in that Buffalo game last Sunday, but then he fell to his knees again before being taken to briefly to the locker room. Staff there again blamed the fall uh, and his issues on a neck injury and let him play again in the game. And then several days later, let him play again on Thursday where he suffered another hit. That was the second game where the frightening images, you saw his arms locked, his hands twisted, and what's called a fencing response. That could lead to permanent damage, in some cases, death. Well, the NFL Players Association, in addition to these new rules, has dismissed a doctor, what they call an independent doctor, who was involved in initially evaluating Tua after he hit his head last Sunday and allowed him to return to the field. They have not revealed the identity of this doctor, but they have uh, let him go. They typically appoint these what's called uh, unaffiliated neurotrauma consultants 
to produce independent valuations for players being evaluated for head injuries. But it'll be interesting to see if there's a demand for different types of experts being used here on the sidelines. As there are a number of doctors and concussion experts who watched even on television and said that is clearly a concussion. And yet this independent, unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant the NFL had uh, determined that it wasn't a concussion. So they have let that doctor go. We'll see what happens with their hiring of other doctors. In the meantime, it appears they are upping the concussion protocol in response to this, and we'll see what happens next. One other NFL headline before we move on to other topics. Terry Bradshaw revealed on Fox NFL Sunday that he has dealt with two different types of cancer in the past year and is currently recovering from both bladder cancer and skin cancer. Bradshaw is a pro football Hall of Famer, uh, won multiple Super Bowls as the Pittsburgh Steelers QB. You might know him, though, from his past 30 years on TV, including as a, a weekly Fox Sports analyst on Sundays. He decided to make his announcement that he's been suffering and recovering from two types of cancer after he had trouble breathing during the pregame show. It actually required assistance from his fellow presenter, Howie Long. Bradshaw said, a lot of people are asking me, what's wrong with me? What's happened to me physically? I just want to address it and let you know what has happened in my life. He talked about his diagnosis with bladder cancer uh, last November, said that he's cancer-free, but then this past March, he found a tumor on the left side of his neck that was a rare form of skin cancer. He's still recovering from that second cancer. He said on TV Sunday, folks, I may not look like my old self, but I feel like my old self. I'm cancer-free. I'm feeling great. And over time, I'm going to be back to where I normally am. Here's wishing Terry a full recovery. Okay, a couple final headlines before we go here. There's a trial we're watching out of Wisconsin this week. That's the trial of Daryl Brooks. You might remember him as the man who plowed through Waukesha, Wisconsin's Christmas parade in a Ford Escape last year. That killed six people, injured dozens and more. His trial will open up today with jury selection. It's expected to last at least a month. What's notable here is Brooks is going to be representing himself, even though he has no legal training. The judge ruled that it is okay for Brooks to represent himself. He has shown himself to be disruptive and combative, uh, which could make for a painful watch, especially for the family members of the victims of the uh, parade attack. Prosecutors, for their part, have lined up hundreds of videos of the incident and dozens of eyewitnesses to testify. They promise a case that legal experts have called overwhelming against Brooks. We're going to be watching a meeting of the world's leading oil producers and what they decide to do about oil production. Right now, oil prices have been falling. And as the major oil producers, they want to be able to bring up prices in order to help their economies. You might know OPEC as the 13 countries uh, that make up a lot of oil production in the world and some of the largest oil assets, including Saudi Arabia, Iraq, uh, etc. But OPEC Plus is now an expanded group that has uh, grown in the last few years. It includes Russia. It includes other oil producers uh, that essentially uh, coordinate with that core OPEC group. So OPEC Plus, this mega group of nearly two dozen countries, is going to meet this week and is expected to cut production by a million barrels a day on Wednesday. This will be the largest cut since early in the pandemic when the world effectively shut down and they shut down production. This move threatens to boost oil prices at a time where we're all trying to bring down oil energy costs. Uh, President Biden has been trying to bring down fuel prices here in the US. The Financial Times reports that Saudi Arabia is keen to lower output to prop up prices and that it can keep some production capacity in reserve. Uh, they are coordinating with Russia here, and Russia sorely needs uh, more oil revenue. So they're going to basically decrease the amount of oil supply to increase the prices. This does come, by the way, as here domestically, we have seen two straight weeks where gas prices have risen 
The national average is just at about $3.80 after dropping to nearly $3.60. That was the lowest we had seen in nearly six months. So these production costs uh, could increase the price of oil, which could increase prices further. The issue, by the way, we've been dealing with domestically as to why gas prices have gone up the last couple of weeks is refinery issues. Remember, once oil comes out of the ground, we buy the oil or we produce the oil here, it has to go be refined. But there have been a number of refineries that have been dealing with production issues here in the U.S., uh, and that has limited the amount of uh, refined gasoline uh, that is available for cars, which is why with less refined gasoline and continued demand, we've seen prices go up. And now add to that, you could have this OPEC plus decision to decrease the amount of oil uh, available globally. And you could be seeing prices potentially, some experts say, above $4 again by the end of the year. One other story we were watching over the weekend was the protests in Iran and outside of Iran. The protesters in Iran got support from nearly 150 cities around the world where tens of thousands came out to support the demonstrators and their fight for more rights in Iran against the authoritarian regime. You saw protesters, and I posted some photos from LA, New York, Toronto, Rome, Santiago, London, Tokyo, San Francisco. Many of the protesters are Iranians living in exile. They were calling for an end to the religious authoritarian dictatorship. Meanwhile, in Iran, the protests continue to heat up, in particular on college campuses this weekend. The government appears split on how to respond here. We have seen some violent responses. Hundreds are feared dead among the protesters. There have been potentially thousands of arrests. In some cases, you have the shooting of protesters. You've seen some of these uh, really horrible, violent videos on uh, social media. This all started several weeks ago when 22-year-old Masa Amini died after being arrested by Iran's so-called morality police. She was allegedly wearing her mandatory Islamic headscarf too loosely. She ended up being beaten and died in custody. That set off these protests, but the protests have really expanded beyond that. Many of the protests chants now are all about down with the dictatorship, down with the Ayatollah, uh, and reports are on the ground there that people have really had it with the government, uh, which has shown no sign of letting up. They did call for essentially an investigation uh, into the killing of Amini, but this is really expanded beyond that. And we've seen now the killing of multiple protesters, uh, a, an anthem erupt, uh, imagery that has really gone viral from the protests. And there are reports that there are certain areas of Iran where protesters have taken control of parts of towns. We officially have a new date, sort of, for the long-anticipated launch of NASA's Artemis rocket. That's the mission that's going back to the moon. It has been pushed back several times. NASA now says they're going to squeeze in the launch between November 12th and November 27th. Remember, it was supposed to go in August, then early September. It had issues in regards to uh, fueling. Then finally, they got the fueling issues right. They had it on, uh, ready to go, and Hurricane Ian came, so they take it back inside. Now they got to roll it slowly but surely, the largest rocket that NASA's ever launched back outside, and so they're looking to launch this at the uh, mid to late November. We'll keep you updated on that as we uh, wait this big return to the moon. And finally, I want you to remember the name Andres Valencia. He is 10 years old and being referred to as Little Picasso. In the last year, he's gone from a relative unknown to now a real deal art phenomenon. His surrealist style paintings were acquired by some deep pocketed collectors at Art Basel on Miami Beach. Some of his art is now going into the six figures. In June, he had a solo exhibition over at a gallery in Soho, New York, where all 35 works were sold somewhere between $50,000 and $125,000. One of his paintings went for $159,000 at an auction in Hong Kong. Remember, Andres Valencia is 10 years old in fifth grade. He had another major piece of art go for $230,000 at a charity gala in Capri, Italy this summer. 
I'm going to link to the New York Times story about him. He told uh, the Times in a recent interview, quote, I'm glad I can make people happy with my art and they can hate it in their homes. Valencia is a real deal art prodigy who's being referred to as Little Picasso. Again, he's only 10. His art career began actually when he was four years old. His parents noticed that he would spend hours in their San Diego dining room sketching paintings. Soon thereafter, he would start to sell his watercolors to family friends for $20. This is during elementary school, mind you. And now as he's about to hit middle school, he's selling paintings for more than $200,000. Go Andres. Uh, we will continue to monitor his story. And again, I'll link to it in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Please follow or subscribe to this show on whatever app you're listening to us on. It ensures you will not miss a single episode. Also, please leave us a review on the app you're listening to us on. Every review matters and it really helps us grow. It really matters if you could just take a quick moment to review the show. Leave us a five-star review, hopefully. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, the Mo News newsletter, over at monews.bulletin.com and follow me on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow.